Welcome to episode one of ASU Care's new Gather Storytelling Podcast, where we share the stories of fascinating people from Arizona and sometimes beyond. We all have stories to tell. What does home mean to you? Our three guests in this edition of Gather will share their answers as we explore the theme, Calling It Home. For Kenja Hassan, buying a home brought up a lot of unexpected anxiety due to the complexities and horribly racist old laws around Black land and home ownership in the U.S. Ruchi Kalra shares her long journey to U.S. citizenship, and Howard H.B. Branch discovers the many facets of home after visiting Ghana and experiencing a lack of mental workload involving his own Blackness there. Learn more about the Gather series and podcast at asukerr.com. These stories were originally remotely recorded in July 2020 over Zoom with guest host Nina Simone Moore. Good evening and welcome to ASU Cares Gather, a storytelling series where we believe everyone is a storyteller. We seek to create a platform that facilitates the expansion and crafting of narratives that connect and inspire. My name is Nina Simone Moore. Yes, that is my real name. <laughs> I'm casting in from Brooklyn, New York, and identify as a storyteller. I enjoy bringing stories to life in multiple mediums. I'm a writer, performer, and work in film and television production. I had the pleasure of being a part of Gather 3 last month, and I'm so happy to be back to host tonight. You can catch me on Facebook by searching Nina Simone Moore and on Instagram at Crazy for This Life. You are in for a treat tonight. We have a beautiful lineup. The theme for tonight is calling it home. Be sure to show your love to the artists in the comment section with smiley face, a thumbs up, hearts, snaps, and claps. When I watched the playback of my performance last month, I was touched by all of the comments. So be sure to give your positive feedback after each piece. Tonight, we'll be featuring three storytellers, followed by a 10 to 15 minute Q&A with the artist. We want to hear your questions, so be sure to submit them in the chat. Our first storyteller, Kenja Hassan, serves as ASU's Cultural Relations Director. Hassan serves as a liaison between ASU and diverse communities throughout the Valley. During her time at ASU, Kenja has brought college prep programs to American Indian youth on reservations, launched a series of reports on the status of Arizona's ethnic and racial minorities, and orchestrated national dialogues on pressing issues in Washington, D.C. and other cities. Kinja holds a B.A. in religion from Princeton University and an M.A. in religious studies from Arizona State University, both with a focus on American Indian traditions. She is currently pursuing a Ph.D. at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation, focusing on health disparities in the African-American community. I give you Kenja Hassan. Thank you, Simone. The title of my story is, Who Deserves to Own a House and Call It Home? So 10 years into co-owning a house with my partner, I still love that I get to call this house my home. It's a lovely 1925 bungalow that had been completely refurbished. But you know, I got those moments when I second guess home ownership, you know those days when it's 117 outside and you don't know if the air conditioner can keep up, when the woodpecker puts a hole right over the front door. Some days I swear I can hear the termites. 
Oh gosh, in the yard, the <laughs> yard. Yes, there are definitely things about being a homeowner that make me go, huh, I just don't feel like dealing with it. But in those moments, I do a gratitude check. You know, I literally ask myself, what can I be grateful for about the situation in this moment? Some days I am so excited about my Dyson vacuum cleaner because my great grandmother, well, she only had a broom and it was her full-time job to clean houses for white families because that's really all the employment that was available to black women in her town at her time. And the yard, okay, that godforsaken yard, it really is my oasis. But the grass, the oleanders, ugh. sometimes I just feel grateful that I don't have to cut wood and cook over an open fire after working all day out in the sun like my ancestors did without pay. So my joy at owning this space is the same as those early American men who no longer wanted to be serfs on some European lord's land and declared their independence from England. I might be a different color and a different gender, but the dream is the same. Don't I deserve a great place to call home? Did I mention location? You know, as realtors say, location, location, location. This house is in a great spot with access to highways, groceries, entertainment, employment. I know it is a privilege for me to call this spot home because prior to the 1960s Fair Housing Act, Black people in Phoenix were not allowed to live north of Van Buren. Now, sure, I guess my partner, who is a white man, could have bought the house while I pretended to be the live-in housekeeper. I bet that happened more than once back in the day. But didn't women like me deserve to own a house and a house that's surrounded by great amenities and call it home even then? In 2010, after the housing bubble burst, my partner and I made an offer on this house, which we thought would be a long shot. But my partner and I had great credit and the ability to make a good down payment, thanks in large part to the accumulated wealth of his parents, which they were willing to share with us. Now, in hindsight, I have mixed emotions knowing how predatory lending prior to the housing crisis affected home buyers of color. Predatory lending to minority purchasers was rampant during that time, and it contributed to the bursting of the bubble, which made my house somewhat affordable. Only 7% of all homeowner-occupied houses were in Black neighborhoods, but those Black homeowners were twice as likely to face foreclosure as whites. So yes, I gained a dream home at a time when other people of color were losing theirs. And I wonder, did they really deserve to lose the houses that they called home? When I reflect on my good fortune, I consider how much the United States government was willing to support land and home ownership for white people versus my African-American ancestors. So I think about the Homestead Act from time to time. During the years of the Homestead Act, which was initiated during the Civil War, some 1.6 million deeds were claimed by farmers who were willing to make the land productive. I know it was a hard road to hoe. It was a lot of work. But they got allotments of 160 acres, and over time, that led to a 10% shift of all public land to private homeowners, up until 1976 when the Homestead Act ended. So a Civil War era promise was also made to African-American freed slaves. General Sherman's Field Order Number 15 promised a 400,000-acre strip of land to be given to freed slaves in increments of 40 acres. That's where 40 acres comes from. Now, this land swap order was revoked by President Andrew Johnson the following year. 
And that land remained with the former Confederates who had actually taken up arms against the United States. Freed slaves received nothing except the option to work on the plantations of the people who used to own them. Now slaves proved they could work hard and improve the land, just like homesteaders. Why didn't they deserve to own land that they could call home? So when I have those homeowner moments of, uh, I just don't feel like dealing with it, I think about my grandparents who were early integrationists in Washington, D.C.'s Rock Creek Park era, area. Now, knowing my granddad was a World War II vet, I assumed that he got to use the GI Bill in order to buy the house. But then I later learned that he, like many other Black vets from that time period, did not benefit from the GI Bill because the Federal Housing Association, which was the government agency that backed loans to white veterans so that banks could minimize their risk in case the veteran couldn't keep their house, they often did not do the same for Black vets. Now, I know that Black vets bled the same as white vets. Didn't they deserve to own a nice house and call it home as well? Back when our offer was accepted in 2010, I had a conversation with a well-to-do white friend of mine who lives up in Paradise Valley. Now, she sensed this foreboding that I couldn't pinpoint myself. And she kept asking me questions like, Kinja, what is your problem? And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can really afford a house. You know, all the upkeep, all the costs, things like that. Well, she assured me that my competence and my partner's competence would keep us from falling into these catastrophic scenarios. But seeing that I wasn't assuaged, she gave me one of those stern, compassionate looks and said, Kenja, what is it really? I remember tears welling up in my eyes and I said to her, you know, I don't really feel like I deserve to own a nice house. When the title arrived for us to sign, a copy of the original deed came as part of that package and it was placed on top. Now I read this top page out loud because I was excited. I knew we had to sign a bunch of papers. I pull it out and this document on the very top said, ownership of said house shall never be transferred to a Negro. It said that in multiple places, multiple times. Now Orientals and Indians were also not allowed to own the house. They could live in it as housekeepers, but they couldn't own it. So this deed was from 1925, it's called a restrictive covenant, and it was common throughout the United States prior to the fair housing laws. I had never seen one before, and I said to my partner, when we go to the title office to sign the papers and they find out I'm black, will they still let me keep the house? He says, Kendra, all that stuff is illegal now. You can totally own the house. All that stuff was outlawed 50 years ago. As a rule, are you sure? Maybe you should just go on your own. No, no, no with us. We have to sign the documents together. So, you know, I never really thought of myself as someone who is susceptible to internalized racism. But still, I wonder about my inability to accept that I deserve to own a nice house and to call it home. Thank you. Kenja, what a powerful story. Ooh, owning your own home is so important. And it's so unfortunate that for a long time, people of color were denied this right. But the push for change of thought, heard in your words, felt resounding. You asked such important questions. Thank you for sharing. Our next storyteller is Ruchi Kalra. Kalra has traveled the globe, as you will hear in her story tonight. She has a Bachelor of Science in Math and Computer Science and an MBA in Marketing. Ruchi has her own business coaching firm, Dancing Raindrops, Inc., to help small businesses tell their stories authentically. When not helping clients, Ruchi spends her time writing. 
She is an Amazon best-selling author, having co-authored four books, and is now working on her own solo book. She is a contributor to AZ India Times newspaper, Brown Girl Magazine, Thrive Global, Medium, and more. Her writing is a spicy yet soulful blend of Indian heritage, African upbringing, and American influences. She also has a passion for painting, cooking, and baking. She has been actively running a recipe group on Facebook since the start of COVID, which has turned into a micro community of support and escape for many. She is very active in her local community and is an advisor for the organization Help Humanity Today. She loved to travel and footprint the world before COVID with her family, which includes her husband Vivek, her kids Raya and Ishan, and her fur baby Jax. And now, Ruchi Kalra. Thank you, Nina, for the lovely introduction. I am so excited to be here tonight. So what is home? Is it where we were born? Is it where we were raised? Is it where our parents live? Or is it where we live right now? Does the definition of home change over the years as we get older? One of the first get to know you questions that people ask is, where are you from? Now, I don't know if I should just give them a quick, vague answer, or if I should give them my whole long life story. I don't know what they're looking for. So sometimes my answer changes depending on who I'm talking to. Sometimes I'll say India, as that is the country where I was born. That is the country where my extended family lives. And it's also the country of my first passport. Sometimes I'll say Zambia, a small country in Southern Africa that I moved to when I was nine years old with my parents and my brother. And I still take my kids back every summer and I've created so many childhood memories there. Sometimes I'll say Arizona, as that is where I live right now with my husband and my kids. But then there are times when people will say, well, where are you really from? Oh, okay. I was born in India. I grew up in Zambia and I moved to the U.S. to go to college. Oh, where and when um, in the U.S.? Oh, you want the long story. Okay, here it goes. I moved to the U.S. in 1986 to a college in Kentucky. I was a young, scared, nervous 15-year-old who had traveled across the world to live in the dorms by myself with a promise to my dad that I would return when those four years were up. But somewhere between my sophomore and junior year, I realized I was enjoying this teenage freedom just a little too much. I could wake up whenever I wanted to. I could eat whenever I wanted to. I think I even gained the freshman 15 that everyone talks about. I wasn't ready to give up that freedom yet. So I convinced my dad, let me do my master's. And so I started my master's. And after that, I ended up getting a four-year work visa here in Arizona. And by this time, my parents had made peace. This girl does not come in home. And they were right. This is where I felt I belonged. This is where I felt I wanted to be. The only time I felt differently is when I would fly back from an international trip and the immigration officer would say, what is the purpose of your visit, ma'am? That's right. I'm a visitor. I'm a foreigner. How did I forget that? And he would hand me back my passport 
And I would heave a sigh of relief and I would think, oh, that's it. Today is not the day I'm getting deported. My paperwork is in order. And he would give me my passport and I'd be on my way. Somewhere along those four years, I fell in love. And I not only fell in love with someone who was just as confused with the definitions of home, but he also unfortunately had his own set of visa issues. But we got married, we bought a house, we applied for a green card, and we started a family. And in 2001, we were both working in corporate America, and we had a two-year-old, and we were applying, we were waiting for our green cards. And one day, the lawyers called, and they said, Ruchi, your work visa is about to expire, and we can't renew it anymore, and you need to go home. But Vivek can stay here because it's his company that's sponsoring him. I vaguely remember hearing Vivek and the lawyers talking about, is it going to be months? Is it going to be years? And they said, yeah, it's likely going to be years. And all I remember, I was still stuck on the first part where they said, go home, go home, go home to where? Go home to India, where my extended family lives and I still feel a lot of love from them. But I haven't lived there since I was nine years old. How would I adjust? Oh, do they mean go back to Zambia where my parents live, where my in-laws live, where I take the kids back every summer? But I have no legal status to live there. I was scared. They even said we could move, I could move across the border to Canada and Vivek could live on the American side and he could drive up on the weekends to see my daughter and I. I didn't know if this is what I wanted. We didn't want to break up our family. And I was scared. This is it. The day had come. I was going to get kicked out. But Vivek was convinced. We will find a solution. But all I kept thinking was he can't leave and I can't stay. But we talked to a bunch of lawyers. We talked to a bunch of friends. And we found out the only way I could legally stay in this country was to get back on an international student visa. So I quickly applied for admissions and I started a second master's degree and we continued on our journey of a green card. Three years later, we had a two-year-old, a five-year-old, and we finally had a green card. And five years after that, which is the legal time you have to wait, we had our citizenship. And I clearly remember driving to downtown Phoenix to take our oath ceremony and thinking, wow, this means so much. This means that I have a voice. This means that for the first time in my life, I can vote in any country. But most importantly, it meant that I could let go of the fear of being kicked out of a country that I had called home for the last 23 years. Now, over the years, I have learned to count my blessings and know that I'm blessed to be able to juggle the three, the definitions of home, and also to be able to incorporate the culture and the heritage of all three countries, not only for myself, but also for my kids. And now 
when I come back into the United States and the immigration officer hands me my American passport and he says, welcome home, ma'am. I crack a big smile and I think in my head, heck yeah, finally. Thank you. Thank you, Ruchi. Uh, what a timely story. Being a global citizen, your distinctions between heritage, nationality, and home were so clearly relayed. Your story is relatable to so many Americans. I've had those slightly awkward roadmap conversations a few times myself. Thank you for sharing. Our final storyteller of the evening is Harold Branch. Harold Branch III, affectionately known as HB, hails from the west side of Chicago. Defying all odds, he went on to become an applauded poet, speaker, and business trainer. HB's 25 plus year career accolades include his life story being featured on multiple media outlets, including an MTV documentary. His poetry and stage credentials include touring with global platinum music artist Woodstock 99, the Winter Olympics, and hundreds of schools and open mics. His youth and community work experience are prolific, touching the townships and police departments of Durban, South Africa, retreats in Canada, schools, hospitals, youth correctional facilities, universities, spiritual centers, and conferences all across the US. Considered a pioneer in the Arizona spoken word scene, HB was the founder and host of one of the country's largest open mic poetry and arts events, home-based poetry, serving Arizona for over 10 years. This ASU graduate received the prestigious honor of being included in the Michigan Board of Education's 2016 list of 100 African-American males you should know. His skills took him to Ghana under a month-long Fulbright-Hayes Fellowship as an artistic cultural ambassador. But he is most proud that in 2016, Black Enterprise Magazine featured Mr. Branch and his ex-wife concerning their accomplishments in co-parenting their highly gifted children, Harold IV and Ella Lene. Harold H.B. Branch, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone, for me, as we wait for the video, <laughs> there we go. Everyone, how you doing? So grateful to be here. The My story is, is really about how hard it has been to find home how difficult it has been to define where home really is. I mean, I have to be honest, I'm a nomad by nature. I'm a poet, a spoken word artist. I am the individual that, that travels and, and writes and recites and sleeps on people's couches, right? And do that, and that's my spirit. And that's been my spirit for a very long time. But not being able to find home, it actually started way before that. You see, if home is defined or given to us by our parents, I started off a little bit lacking. My, I was separated from my dad at one. My mother passed away when I was two. Thank God I had my granny, my aunt, my uncles, as well as my brother and sister to pick up that slack and raise me and give me all the love in the world and, and attempt to build a home for me. 
But I have to admit, I still always felt a little different, a little disconnected. I always felt a little weird. And it wasn't their fault. They did everything they possibly could. But for me, it almost felt like it was an obligation, like they like it was a favor because I knew I wasn't their responsibility. And that was my foundation when it came to home. That was the challenge that I experienced. Now, once again, that wasn't their fault. It was my own mentality. Now, Chicago was rough. Chicago was very tough in the 80s and the 90s. And at one point, it got so tough that they decided I need to get as far away as possible. Thank God I had reconnected with my father by then. And he lived in Arizona, not just Arizona, but Avondale, Arizona in the mid 90s. I moved to Arizona and it was a different world. It was absolutely strange. Um, The Southwest culture was something that took a lot of getting used to. I was in culture shock, but I got to admit, Arizona welcomed me with open arms. They loved me. It was like every part of Arizona wanted me to be here. And so when people started to ask, where am I from? I had to say Chicago. That's where I was raised. That's where I was made. That's where my foundation was. I didn't leave till I was 16. And by then I lived three or four lifetimes in Chicago alone. But then I was in Arizona and I have to claim Arizona because Arizona is where I got polished. Arizona is where I really learned how to translate all of my experiences into being a man and leaving childhood things behind. And even after that, I continued to move from Arizona to Chicago and back and forth. So even though I'm from Shizona, as I like to say, I got to admit, I still feel a little disconnected in both places. Even though I feel comfortable, it's not 100% home. To no fault of either place, to no fault of any people involved. My own insecurities, I'm sure, fed and feed into that. So fast forward a little bit later, a lot a bit later, I turned 40. And for anybody that's 40 years old, you know, turning 40 meant I was grown, like for real grown, not play grown, like straight up grown, like my knees hurt and I can't explain it, kind of grown, right? I'm paying taxes and understand them and still don't like it kind of grown, like a for real, for real grown. I cannot fake it and blame it on youth anymore. And when I looked at my age and peeped I was 40, it was a lot of things I had not accomplished yet. A lot of things I hadn't done, a lot of things that's been on my list that I said I would get to later. But it was later and later was here. And something clicked in me and said, things I need to do, I need to do right now. And it was at that time, another blessing showed up And I was offered a Fulbright Hayes Fellowship to go to Ghana on a cultural experience to do that with teachers from the Phoenix Union School District, as well as students from Arizona State University. Now, I was neither of those, but I was the artist. And they brought me in to do some work in the schools as we worked with teachers in Ghana to learn their teaching methods and to teach them ours. And I got a chance to put together the the assembly for over 500 students. But while we were there, we got a chance to experience the motherland to experience home. And it was something different when my feet touched the soil that my ancestors touched. 
it was something different when I got to go to um, the villages and meet the the hennies and the kings and the bottom of hennies and experience the priestesses and the 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 spiritual aspect of my people. I've always been proud of my blackness. I've always felt good about my African descent, but it was something else to live in it than it was to read it, than it was to hear the stories of it. And I was there. I was there for the whole thing, the culture, the history of it. And I have to be honest. I didn't have all the effort that it took to be black in America. Being a black man here was effort, was energy. And that was energy I was able to save because being black in Ghana wasn't special. I didn't have to worry about so much that I worry here. It was like a weight lifted off my shoulders. And I even got a chance to go to the, the slave dungeons and the castles and experience the pain of our people. And it broke my heart and it filled me with sadness. It filled me with anger, but it also filled me with an immense amount of grace for all of the descendants that went through it, that survived it. It gave me a level of understanding of my people that I did not have before, and a feeling of honor, of blessed. It was mind-blowing, family. I knew then I needed to live in Africa. I needed to be here often to be recharged, to reconnect, but not all the time. I still miss the United States. I'm an American. I grew up here. There was a lot of things about the U.S. I absolutely missed, and by then it was time to come back to the States. And as we flew back, it was an anxiety because it was another culture shift. I had changed in Africa. I changed there with the people. And I was coming back to a culture that was way more comfortable with confrontation, way more comfortable with aggression. And I started to have, trying to fight anxiety attacks um, in the airports. And finally, I got back to Arizona and I landed and we went through our process. And by the time I got around to where the families can greet us, I saw my kids and I realized in that moment as they held a sign that said, you're gonna be happy to be back home. <laughs> I knew then that I had traveled the U.S. looking for a home. I even went to the motherland and that felt like home too, but something was still missing. It wasn't until I looked at my kids and the smiles on their faces and the joy in their eyes for seeing their daddy that I knew they were my home. That was home. And honestly, no matter where we're located, that's the only home I need. There's no place like home. Thank you. Thank you, HB. Oof. I'm sure visiting the motherland has a way of putting things in perspective. I love most that you realize that home for you did not exist or take shape in the form of a single place, but in your children, your legacy. What a powerful realization. Harold, Ruchi, Kenja, thank you for sharing your stories with us this evening. I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say tonight's stories have given us much food for thought. We. We are in a very active time right now. 
Action commonly comes in reaction to an occurrence or a realization, but I feel we often forget the self-reflection that is at play as well. I hope tonight leads to honest self-reflection for us all, so we're able to move forward with more positive actions in the future. That's the Gather Storytelling Podcast for this month. Next month, we'll be back with three all-new Arizona storytellers. For more content, visit ASUKERR.com or find ASUKERR on YouTube.